Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. have your Bibles, turn with me into the book of Exodus this morning. Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 22. Hope you'll stay with me this morning. This is going to be a little different than a lot of our messages because there's going to be a lot of information on the front end. But if you hang with me through the information, we'll get to the application We'll be discussing some things that are pertinent to us, specifically as Cumberland Presbyterians. Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 22. If you have that passage, if you would stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, otherwise they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses, as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shifra and the second whose name was Pua, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Pharaoh then commanded all his people, You must throw every son born to the Hebrews, into the Nile, but let every daughter live. This ends the reading of God's word, the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious God, I pray that you'll give us ears to hear your voice this morning. I pray that you'll give us eyes to see that what your word says to us and that you'll give us hearts to receive it with joy and that you'll send your spirit to use this word to cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness. We love you, we praise you, and we give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. 
This phrase is often attributed to Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin, but even among historians, it's hard to nail down where the phrase originates. What we do know is that Thomas Jefferson wanted that phrase to be on the official seal of our nation, and with good reason. It kind of sums up how our nation came to be. We were under the rule of tyrants. We rebelled due to the whole laundry list of reasons that we know of through history, not the least of which was oppressive taxation without representation. And as much as it excites good old red-blooded Americans to talk about claiming our independence from the British, there was another situation in history that the Bible records in our text that I believe has far more significant moral implications than the issue of whether or not we'll pay taxes. This is an issue that involves the protection of life. This is an issue that involves not only the protection of life, but obedience to God in the face of a command toward death. Now we read last week in Romans 13 where Paul said to pay your taxes to whom they're due. Or we read, or sorry, we read that about two weeks ago. We read in Romans 13 where Paul said to pay your taxes to whom they're due. And then we went and started, started a war and founded a whole new nation over whether or not we wanted to pay taxes, right? The Bible says pay your taxes and we decided not to do that. So now there's a war and now there's a, there's a whole new nation. Now you can do with that information what you will. However, what we're dealing with this week is whether or not people will obey God or obey man when they're confronted with the choice between the two. Rebellion to tyrants isn't always obedience to God because we also read a couple weeks ago in 1 Peter 2.17 where Peter said to honor everyone, love the brethren, fear God, and honor the king. Now, the king in Peter's context is Nero. You know who Nero is, right? He was the evil, oppressive emperor who would light Christians on fire on posts and use them to light up his garden at night during parties. Nero is someone who is actively oppressing and persecuting believers, but Peter says to honor the king. Well, how do you honor someone like that? You give them honor through prayer. You honor the title that they have been given, even if you can't bring yourself to honor the person. Now, that being said, if Peter can honor Nero, then you can honor Joe Biden. Y'all quiet this morning, right? Now, we discussed this a couple weeks ago, but the command to honor someone is not predicated on whether or not they deserve honor. All right? The command to honor someone is not predicated on whether or not they deserve honor. It's predicated on the God who gives the command and gets glory when we give honor to whom honor is due. Now, think about this. Peter can make this argument not only because he lived in a far more oppressive society than we're living in now, but because in Acts chapters 4 and 5, Peter has his own run-in with governmental authorities when they tell him and John that they need to stop teaching and speaking in the name of Jesus. And Peter and the apostles come to this conflict with these governmental leaders in Acts 5.29, and here's how they resolve the issue in Acts 5.29. They say, we must obey God rather than man. We must obey God rather than man. So the testimony of Scripture is clear that when it comes to the relationship between the believer and leadership, whether that's governmental leadership, church leadership, denominational leadership, or otherwise, you should always honor and obey those in authority over you until... 
there is a conflict between your obedience to them and your obedience to God. Is that clear? Now, that's the practical background I want us to keep in mind as we explore this passage in Exodus 1. So think about this as we go through here. How does this text relate to the relationship between you and those in leadership over you? How does this relate to you and your employer? How does this relate to you and the church? How does this relate to the church and the presbytery? How does this relate to our presbytery and the General Assembly? As you think about those questions, there are three headings I want us to look at this text under. First of all, if you follow along in your bulletin, then you'll see that tyrants create a disconnect between uh, tyrants create a disconnection from godly leadership. Number two, tyrants encourage disobedience to God's law, and number three, God gives providence for a godly lineage. Those are the three things that we're going to cover this morning. So let's look at the first idea that, t- that tyrants create a disconnection from godly leadership. Look at verse eight. A new king who did not know about Joseph. <coughs> came to power in Egypt. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Now because I know that all of you read the Bible thoroughly, you know the story of Joseph like the back of your hand, I shouldn't have to remind you how the Israelites found their way into Egypt to begin with, but you know, for for those who may be watching us online, let's do a quick recap of the end of Genesis. Joseph who was the son of Jacob, was sold into slavery to the Midianites by his brothers. The Midianites then sold him him to an Egyptian officer named Potiphar. Then Potiphar's wife accused Joseph of trying to sleep with her, and he found himself in an Egyptian prison. It was revealed that Joseph had the gift of dream interpretation, and after interpreting the dreams of his fellow prisoners in Genesis 40, he was given the opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dream in Genesis 41. And Pharaoh eventually promoted him to be second in command in all of Egypt. So so Joseph found his way from the pit to the prison to the palace. And eventually, Joseph and his brothers were reunited because they came to Egypt to escape the famine in Canaan. And his whole family and their children came to live in Egypt. Now up to this point, they've been living in Egypt. Okay? And things have been going well, but now Joseph and his family are dead. They've lived a long time, they've had good long lives, but now they they are gone. But in spite of their death, verse 7 tells us that the Israelites were fruitful, they increased rapidly, they multiplied and became extremely numerous. Now the wording of verse 7 in Exodus chapter 1 is not a mistake. It's meant to evoke the same imagery that we get from the creation mandate in Genesis 1.28 where God tells our first parents, Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. We see this command reiterated in Genesis 9.1 when Noah and his family come off the ark and God tells them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. We see this same language in Genesis 17. 2 and 6, when God is making a covenant with Abraham, and he says, I will multiply you greatly. I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings from you. So the expansive growth of the Israelites was a sign of blessing. God was blessing them where they were in Egypt, but when a new Pharaoh came into power who did not know Joseph and had experience with God's people, and did not have experience with God's people, they quickly went from living under a blessing to living under a curse. 
Here's the application. Here's the broader application. God's people suffer when godly leadership is forgotten. God's people suffer when godly leadership is forgotten. Matter of fact, I think it's pretty interesting that if you read Exodus chapter 1 verse 8 from the NIV, specifically from an NIV that has been published after 2011 because they did, they did the update in 2011. If you look at Exodus 1 8 in the 2011 NIV, it says, Then a king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. A new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Joseph's lineage meant nothing to him. Joseph's history with Egypt meant nothing to him. Joseph saving Egypt from a famine meant nothing to him. Nothing that Joseph and his family had to do with Egypt meant nothing to this new king, mostly because this new king, if you look between the lines and you study history a little bit, the reason this new king... The reason Joseph meant nothing to this new king is because this new king wasn't even Egyptian. How did a non-Egyptian become king in Egypt? Well, A.W. Pink tells us how that happened. A.W. Pink in Gleanings from Exodus says in Acts chapter 7 verse 18, we read, till another king arose which knew not Joseph. As one has pointed out, there is, a, there is in the Greek two different words for another. Alos, which means another of the same kind, and heteros, which signifies another of a different kind. It is the latter word in which, is, which is used in Acts 7.18. By turning back to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 4, we learn what this, other, what this king of another kind actually was. Here's what it says in Isaiah 52.4. For thus saith the Lord God, my people went went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without a cause. So the Assyrian mentioned there was the new king who did not know Joseph. What had happened was, at that time, there was a conflict between Egypt and Assyria, and Assyria came in and overran Egypt, and they took and they established new leadership in Egypt. So the new king that came to power that Joseph meant nothing to was Assyrian. And of course, if you know the history of the Old Testament, you know that there was great conflict between the Assyrians and the Israelites constantly. And so the new Assyrian king wanted the Egyptian people to forget what God's people had done for them. The new Assyrian king wanted, wanted the Egyptian people to forget what God's people had done for them. He also wanted God's people to forget what God himself had done for them. God's ultimate goal for his people wasn't slavery, it was freedom. It was for them to have their own land and for them to prosper and be a blessing to the nations. Tyrants will always try to wipe the memory of God's people through means of oppression. Tyrants will always try to wipe the memory of God's people through means of oppression. I think one writer had it right Bruce Filer had it right whenever he said that the story in Exodus begins with forgetting. I'll say that again. The story begins with forgetting. The Pharaoh does not remember how a son of Israel saved Egypt from famine. The rest of the, rest of the five books of Moses becomes an antidote to this state of forgetfulness. 
God hears the groanings of Israel and remembers his covenant. Moses leads the Israelites from Egypt and urges them to remember this day. The Israelites are ordered to remember the Sabbath day and to observe Passover as a day of remembrance. And so in order to combat this intentional forgetfulness that Pharaoh wants to force on the Israelites, God tells his people to constantly remember. Remember, remember, remember. Countless times throughout the Old Testament, God speaks through the prophets and tells his people, remember when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so here's the thing. God institutes a system through Moses, which you'll see later in, in Exodus, that is constantly based on remembrance. Because the whole reason the people went into slavery to begin with was because a man came into power who wanted them to forget. Godless leadership wants you always to forget godliness. And so when bullying and oppression don't work, when bullying and oppression, when bullying and oppression doesn't work, tyrants then resort, resort to encourage disobedience to God's law. Look at verses 15 and 16 and verse 22. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shipper and the second whose name was Pua. First of all, I think it's interesting that the Hebrew midwives that saved these children are mentioned by name, but the Pharaoh is not. Right? You know, I think it's interesting that they're mentioned by name, but the Pharaoh's not. We just have his title. The Bible doesn't tell us which Pharaoh it was. Now, if we dig into history, we can find out who it was. But that's the only way we know who it was. God gave us a record that recorded their names. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, first whose name was Shipra, the second whose name was Pua, when you help the the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him, but if it's a daughter, she may live. Then look down at verse 22. Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let the daughters live. What we see in the text throughout throughout the first chapter of Exodus is that there is an assault on the past, there is an assault on the present, and there is an assault on the future of God's people. The the first assault on the past was that it was it was what God what God's people had done in the past and what God had done for Egypt meant nothing to Pharaoh. That was the assault on the past. The assault on the present was God intended for his people to live in freedom, but instead Pharaoh forces them into slavery. And of course the assault on the future was that Pharaoh issued a command to kill all of the male Hebrew infants. Pharaoh keeps the Hebrew girls alive but kills the boys. That way when the girls grow up they have no choice but to take Egyptians' husbands. Pharaoh wanted assimilation. And the the way that Pharaoh was going to get assimilation was to eliminate the men. The way Pharaoh was going to get assimilation was to eliminate the men. Listen, there is a demonic attack on men in our culture and our society. If if a man is a man in our culture and in our society, then he's labeled a male chauvinist, he's labeled a bully, according to our culture... Masculinity in in any form is toxic. Now there is such a thing as toxic masculinity. 
When a man beats up on a woman, when a man abuses a woman, when a man abuses his power and authority, that's toxic masculinity. But in our culture, a man isn't really allowed to be a man. And we see that in a lot of sitcoms and shows in our culture. Because the main pattern, the main pattern that you see in a lot of sitcoms and shows is that the man is an idiot. The man is adult. I mean, go, let's go back to the 80s for a minute. Y'all remember that, that sitcom Married with Children? Al Bundy was an idiot. That was very popular. Al Bundy was an idiot. Now his wife was, now his wife in that particular show was kind of dim too. But Al Bundy was portrayed as a dummy. Family guy. Peter Griffin's an idiot. American Dad. The dad in that show's an idiot. Right? Men are portrayed as being dull as being dull in our culture and in our society. There is an attack on men. And so, Pharaoh kills the girls, but he keeps the boys alive. That way when the girls grow up, they have no choice but to take Egyptian husbands and assimilate into a culture that they were never intended to live in. When an oppressive leader steps up to the plate to get, when an oppressive leader steps up the, to the plate to command infant side, infanticide, two women whose job and calling it was to give life take a position of civil disobedience. Here, so here's where the rubber meets the road. When we are confronted with a situation where we are to obey God or obey the government, where are we going to stand? When we're confronted with a situation, whether it's whether when we're confronted with a situation where we have to either obey God or obey the government, obedience to one is disobedience to the other. What are we going to do? Here's a more pressing question: What are we as a church going to do if we're ever confronted with a choice between obedience to God and obedience to our presbytery or obedience to our general assembly? Now, as we saw from last week's message, we can't sit on the sidelines when God calls us to obedience. We can't sit on the sidelines when God calls us to obedience. Now, we, we get the idea that things are cushy right now. Arkansas Presbytery went well. The vote went good. So far, other presbyteries are voting for the Arkansas Amendment. Things seem to be going well. But what about if they don't go well in the future? The First United Methodist Church in LaGrange, Georgia, took a vote on whether or not they would stay with the United Methodist Church. And because they were a fairly large church, the North Georgia Conference fought to keep them. When the vote was taken, the congregation voted to remain in the United Methodist Church, but only by a very small margin. They needed two-thirds of the votes to disaffiliate but they got shy of two-thirds of vote, votes by 13 votes. But 64% still voted to disaffiliate. So the majority still wanted to disaffiliate, but it wasn't quite two-thirds, so they couldn't. And this is what the Good News magazine reported as the after-effects of that vote. The article states that the week after the vote, a prayer meeting was held to promote healing and unity in the congregation. The district superintendent recruited another pastor to attend the prayer meeting and video record it. 
At the conclusion of the prayer meeting, that pastor verbally and publicly confronted both the senior and associate pastors of LaGrange First, yelling and saying, if you had any integrity, you would resign from the United Methodist Church. The following Sunday, the senior pastor, the Reverend Dr. John Byers, preached a conciliatory, a conciliatory sermon indicating his hope that the church could continue its ministry and that it could be a strong traditionalist voice within the North Georgia Conference. At the same time, nearly 250 members of the church met in a Baptist church gymnasium to start a new global Methodist congregation. This past Sunday, this past Sunday as when the article was written, um, this past Sunday it was announced that Byers had been suspended by the Bishop and Conference Board of Ordained Ministry, and one of the former LaGrange College presidents was appointed as the interim pastor. In keeping with the suspension, Byers was forbidden any contact with the church members and barred from the church campus. By the way, I tried to search high and low for a valid reason for his suspension by the North Georgia Conference, and I couldn't find one. They literally suspended him for being a traditionalist. One of the worst mistakes we could make is to assume that just because the vote went well in Arkansas Presbytery and, the, and that the vote seems to be going well in other presbyteries, that there's still not a war to fight. We can't make the mistake of assuming that just because we're in a different denomination with a different polity that this can't happen in our backyard. Reverend Dr. John Byers was vilified and discriminated against because he made his intentions clear that he would spearhead a cause for righteousness in an unrighteous situation, and he's not the only one. The pastor at Jonesboro First United Methodist Church was suspended simply because his congregation voted overwhelmingly in favor of, of leaving the United Methodist Church. The Arkansas Conference refused to let that congregation go because they're one of the largest UMC churches in the state. In the article that I read about these issues, John, John Lompris said, if you promote theologically orthodox values, listen, listen closely, if you promote theologically orthodox values that, uh, uh, that vindictive liberals dislike, if your congregation has property which liberal leaders may greedily covet, and or if you have success in ministry that may perhaps provoke a little jealousy, then you can expect to have a target on your back. Now he was addressing United Methodists in that quote, but that applies to any church in any denomination that owns the property and trusts it to the church. Listen, the pharaohs of Moses' day are dead and gone, but the pharaohs of our day are teaching in our seminaries, voting on our committees, and writing letters to tell people how they should vote at their presbytery meetings. I will say that again. The pharaohs of our day are teaching in our seminaries, voting on our committees, and writing letters to tell people how they should vote at their presbytery meetings. Our text has to do with a tyrant who orders infanticide because of his own insecurity. He's afraid of an uprising because he understands that he's outnumbered. He wants to distract the Israelites with labor and oppression so that they won't have time to think about the fact that they're more numerous than their oppressors. We have a lot of pastors and elders in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church who have lost hope and are on the verge of losing hope. They're being led to believe that taking a biblical stand on human sexuality and the standards for those who should be in leadership in the local church is old-fashioned, outdated, and puts them on the wrong side of history. 
But what biblical history shows us is that time and time again, when things look dark for the people of God, He will send a deliverer. He will send a deliverance. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. According to Thayer's Greek lexicon, the Greek word for temptation in that verse is pirosmos. And it can mean the trial of a man's fidelity, integrity, virtue, constancy. When you are tempted, whether that means you're tempted to sin or tempted to give up, the question is always the same. Do you have what it takes to stay in the fight until God makes a way out? Or are you going to give in to temptation and fall in line to exactly with what the devil wants you to do? Look at verse 17. Exodus chapter 1 verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt told them and they let the boys live. The midwives, however, feared God. We have people who claim to be Christians who believe that tolerance, especially tolerance of sin, is a virtue because rather than fearing God, they fear people. They're so afraid that someone's feelings will get hurt. They're so afraid that someone won't feel accepted. But listen, I shared these quotes in the bulletin, by the way. Caleb Nelson tells us, If you don't fear God, you will fear Pharaoh and decide that on balance it is better to do the evil that Pharaoh wants you to do than it is to do the good that your conscience is telling you to do. The Puritan preacher from the 1600s still speaks to us today when he says that we fear men so much because we fear God so little. We fear men so much because we fear God so little. When the pressure is on, we've got to make our decision about who we're going to show our allegiance to. Is it going to be God or is it going to be some Pharaoh who tries to set himself up in the place of God? Is it going to be Christ? Is it going to be Antichrist? In that situation, the only path to obedience toward God is rebellion against the tyrants who encourage disobedience toward God. We can't turn our heads and pretend that nothing is wrong or pretend that things are the way that they used to be. If we're God's people, then we need to grow a backbone and act like it. If we're not, then we need to close the doors and go home. Here's the thing. If we we will hold on and serve God, if we will hold on and serve God when the pressure is on, then there will be blessing and deliverance on the other side. And I can prove that to you from the Scriptures. Look at our last point. God gives providence for a godly lineage. Look down at verse 17 again. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. Now look at verses 20 and 21. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, He gave them families. Since the midwives feared God, He gave them families. Now, it's kind of strange when you think about it, isn't it? This is the most dangerous time for Hebrew women to have children, especially boys, because there's no ultrasound. There's no ultrasound machine. There's no way to definitively know the gender of your baby. 
And so if you're a pregnant woman and you give birth during this time and, you, and as soon as you learn that that baby is a male, you're already having to plan for a funeral. And so it looks like this is the most dangerous time in Israel's history to have children. And yet, these Hebrew midwives have families of their own in this dangerous time and in this dangerous age. Why is that? Why would God give you children in such a dangerous time? I'll tell you why. It's because God doesn't operate the way we do. We would look at the situation and say, now isn't, we would look at the situation, we would say, well, now isn't the time to get married and have children? Our people are too oppressed. If we wind up with a boy, he'll be killed. If we wind up with a girl, she'll be a slave from the time she's old enough to walk. And that's what a lot of people even say now. They say, well, I don't want to raise kids in the world we're living in. It's too dangerous. There's too much to worry about. And yet, in one of the most dangerous times in Israel's history, God still gives the gift of children to these midwives. What this tells me is that there's no such thing as a time when it's too dangerous to have kids because if you're a believer, God will make a way for you. We can't have children. There's too many dragons out there. Then raise your children to be dragon slayers. Chapter 1 of Exodus is all about the world that Moses was born into. He was born into a world that by all accounts he should have been killed in. But because there were people like Shepra, Pua, Hokabed, who was Moses' sister, or I'm sorry, Moses' mother, and Miriam, who was Moses' sister, the deliverer that God intended for them to have was safeguarded by his providence. I'm going to close here pretty soon. I'm going to close here pretty soon, but I want you to think about this. In the New Testament, what we find is that Jesus was born into a similar world. In Matthew 2.16, Herod ordered a mass slaughter of every infant male in and around Jerusalem who was two years old or younger because he knew that one of those boys would grow up to try to take his place on the throne. What he didn't know is that Jesus... The child he was after was taken into Egypt by Moses, or I'm sorry, by Mary and Joseph. And he was kept there until Herod died. I think it's interesting when you look back at the, at the story of Jesus and his birth and all of the events surrounding it, and then you look at the story of Moses and all of the events surrounding it, it was very similar. So Moses, he grows up at about 40 years old. He sees an Egyptian, he sees an Egyptian harassing one of his Hebrew brethren and he kills the Egyptian and he buries him in the sand and then he goes and takes refuge at Jethro's place and then God tells him to go back to Egypt and the exact words that God uses to tell Moses to go back to Egypt was go back for the men who sought your life are dead. Then when you fast forward to Matthew, God gives a dream to Joseph after Herod died and he said, the man who sought your life is dead. The man who sought your son's life is dead. Herod was dead. He could go back. The men who sought Moses' life was dead. Moses could go back. The generation that seeks the lives of God's people will eventually die out and the meek will be left to inherit the earth. 
As we move forward through the New Testament, what we find is that the church was also born into a world that by all, of, by, that by all accounts it should have been killed in. All throughout the book of Acts, we find mass slaughter after mass slaughter of believers of Jesus. And every time the governing authorities thought they had the body of Christ snuffed out, it grew. We are a people of the truth. We believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through Him. We need to fight for the truth in a culture of unbelief. And if we won't do it now when things seem favorable, then we won't do it later, and we'll just crumble under the weight of worldly pressure. My prayer for us this morning is that God would open our eyes to the reality of His Word, to the reality of the world in which we live, and that we would be a people who know what time it is and know how to live. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting Father, this is Your Word. We are Your people. And I pray, God, that You would reveal Your Word to us this morning. Reveal the goodness of Your Word to us this morning. Let it be like honey in our mouths. And Father, even, if, even though it's honey like, like honey on our mouths, let it also be bitter to our stomachs so that it washes out all of the sin and impurity in our lives. We love You, we praise You, and we give You glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.